Well, good morning, everyone. Man, it's good to see you guys. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and I hope you're having a great Sunday. Everybody having a good time? All right, we're still going to wake you up. If the 9 a.m. group is more lively than you, that's a problem, okay? So we're going we're gonna to keep that in mind. Hey, so uh, we're glad you're here with us. We have just started a brand new series called Starting Point. And so if, if you're new, this is a great time for you to be here. Um, we're actually talking about the fact that everything has a starting point. Would you agree? If you don't agree with me, uh, uh, it's going to be a long day. So, no, it's fine. I'm teasing. Everything has a starting point, right? Relationships have a starting point. You actually have a starting point. I think, I'm pretty sure you know that. We call it a birthday, okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. You actually have a starting point. And not only that, faith has a starting point as well. Now, for some of us, um, if you're anything like me, maybe you grew up going to church, Maybe you grew up going to Mass. Maybe you grew up uh, at, at a Christian school or a Catholic school. I was actually telling someone my story this morning. I went to a Catholic school and got kicked out by kindergarten. So that was impressive. Um, apparently, they want you to call them father, and I didn't. And like, Luke, you are not my father. Or no, wait, no, sorry. No, I got that backwards. I know, I'm sorry. If you were anything like me, uh, I, I'm derailed. If you're anything like me, you grew up um, learning something about faith. And maybe, just maybe, as you got older and you tried your faith with the adult rigors of life, all the responsibilities, maybe that faith that you were given as a child didn't hold up. And over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be examining whether or not there can be a, a new starting point or a re-starting point or an adult starting point for faith, okay? Last week, we, we kicked off the series and we ended with this kind of, this big question that I wanted you to go and discuss and think about for yourself. And the question was this, who is Jesus and what has he done? That's really, honestly, the starting point for faith. It's the place where we go and we go, okay, hey, who is he and what has he done? Unfortunately, we've all kind of, or most of us at least, have grown up with this idea that, you know, there really is a place called heaven and, 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 and good people go there. We kind of unpacked that this week. Well, today, we're going to take another step in unpacking that, okay? Today, we're going to talk about actually a very, very small word, um, but a, a heavy word nonetheless. The word is sin. Sin. This is a word that doesn't get used very often outside of theological like discussions. You ever notice that? Like we don't we don't talk about sin in our everyday life, generally speaking. You know, like for example, let's say something happens at work. You do something wrong at work on Friday. You would think it was a little odd if you came in Monday morning and your boss said, hey, I, I need you to come in, I need you to come into the office, and we're going to talk about your sins last Friday. Like, we don't, we don't, we don't do that, do we? If you do, that's, that's 
quite the workplace you have, okay? You, you know, if you, if you, hypothetically speaking, if you ever get pulled over by the police, not that that would ever happen to anyone here, okay? But if you ever get pulled over by the police and you hypothetically get written, you know, a ticket, they don't write you a sin citation. You ever notice that? Like, that's not what happens. We just don't talk about sin. Because the word sin is heavy. It's like, if I have sin, I'm done. I'm finished. There is no hope. And so, we've done something in our culture. I understand why we've done it. We've done something in our culture to still be able to deal with our problems. We've, we've, we've come up with another word, a word that I think most of us use. I, I would venture to say all of us have probably used before. And instead of using the word sin, we use a different word. It's a terrible word to use in this con- context, but, but it's a word we use. It's the word mistake. Anybody here ever made a mistake? Yeah, everybody... Raise your hands, right? If you're not raising your hands, okay, come on. Well, you just lied, so there you go, okay? (laughs) Now, if I were to switch it up, and if I were to ask you, have any of you ever had sin in your life? Here's what I know. The people in the front row are kind of (laughs) like, okay? Why? Because, Because the word is heavy. And so we've... We've taken the word sin and we've turned it into another word where we say, ah, I made a mistake. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the definition of the word mistake tells us that, that the way we use it really isn't accurate. Let me, let me show you the definition for the word mistake. Mistake is something you did wrong out of ignorance, like I did, I literally didn't know, or it was an accident. A mistake is something that you make on a math test. You know, you're, you know, two plus two is five. Perfect. Yep, I grew up in Nebraska. The N stands for knowledge. That's how they taught us math. No, you, you, what do you do? You, you take your pencil, you turn it upside down, you take the eraser, and you correct it. Two plus two is equal. Equals four. Since somebody said six, come on. Okay, trying to trip me up. <laughs> now here's here's the thing. We we have all kinds of things that we call mistakes. We we think of ourselves as mistakers because somehow that that makes it feel better. But but if we're honest, and I like to cultivate that in here, at least me being honest with you, if we're honest, sometimes we make mistakes on purpose. Right? Sometimes we have things that we do, and, and you'd say, oh, I made a mistake, I did it again, I had road rage, or I told somebody they were number one, or whatever it was, I don't know, and but the reality is that we actually 
did it on purpose. Not only that, the news is worse than that. Sometimes we actually plan our mistakes. We make plans to go and be mistakers. It's been a long week. You're tired. You want to, you know, let off some steam and you make plans to go and make mistakes. And then you get up Saturday morning and you go, oh man, I don't know what all happened last night, but I'm sure I made some mistakes. And here's the thing. Sometimes we even make mistakes over and over again. We've all We've all done it. We've all heard people who've done it. We've all seen on television a politician who gets up in front of cameras and he, he'll have his, his wife and his children there and they're crying and he's, you know, I don't know what he's doing, but he stands in front of the, the, the cameras and the microphones and he, he confesses and he says, you know, over the last several years I have made some mistakes. And I may not know what he did, but whatever he did, whatever you did, buddy, that was not a mistake. You planned it, you chose, and you did it over and over again. The reality is that when it comes to mistakes, you can correct a mistake. I can correct a mistake. I can, if I'm filling out my taxes and I'm doing it the old way with a pen and paper or a pencil and, 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 and paper and, and, and I realize like my addition was wrong, I can go back and fix it. If I mess up on a test, I can go back and fix it. But the reality is that all of us have things in our lives that we can't go back and correct. We can't go back and fix, which tells me there's something more to the problem in our world, and frankly, the problem in my world, and even further, the problem in my life than just being a mistaker. Because if all I was was a mistaker, then I can correct me. But my life has shown me this, that I can't fix me. In fact, I would say you can't correct you. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And that's why we avoid using this word sin, because it's heavy. The idea of a sinner is the idea that it's someone who knows better, you know, not to do something, but you do it anyway. Or, or on the flip side, you know to do something, and you purposefully plan out and choose not to do it, and that's heavy. So the question I want to wrestle with is, what does Jesus say about a starting point for dealing with, with sin? What, what, is, what does Jesus have to say about whether or not I'm a mistaker, whether or not I am just a, you know, I just, I just need to correct a few things, and if I could correct them or clean them up, then I'd be okay. Is that, is that what Jesus says, or, or what, what, what does Jesus have to say about a, start, a starting point for dealing with my 
mistakes, my sins. I want to show you this morning two passages of Scripture and, and two kind of major revelations that Jesus gives to us about the question of sin. I'm going to start with you in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus tells us about how heavy, how big, how problematic our sin really is. Look at what he, look at what he tells us. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 20, he says, I warn you. Unless your righteousness, okay, unless your good deeds, we talked about your good and your, your bad last week, you know, and whether or not they outweigh one another, and is, is, it, is it about something that you do, or is it about something that Jesus has D-O-N-E done? Well, if it is about what you D-O do, he says, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, what? Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but who are these teachers and these, these Pharisees? Can I just tell you? They are professional do-gooders. That's who they are. They were like professional grade. I mean, they tithed mint and cumin and, and all the spices they grew in their garden. That's how serious they were about being good. Now, if we're honest, when we read about them, they're kind of jerks, but they were serious about being good. And Jesus says, unless you're better than them, what? Let's find out. He says this. This is where the bad news comes in. Unless you're better than them, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh. That doesn't sound good. He goes on and he gives a couple of illustrations, okay? The first one has to do with, well, let's, it has to do with murder. I would guess most of us sitting here would say, I, I, I passed that test. I don't know. Maybe. If not, it's okay. But look at what it says. He says in verse 21, you have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. Cool. Check. Got it. Good to go. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. That seems to make sense, doesn't it? Kind of a big deal. But then Jesus raises the stakes in a way that makes me highly uncomfortable. He says this, but I say to you, verse 22, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Uh Uh-oh. Can we just acknowledge that that's mildly problematic? Right? Like, I don't think we're supposed to move past this quickly. Jesus is saying, if you've ever been angry at somebody, guess what? You're below the bar. That's a problem. Man. And then he goes even further, okay? Look at what he says, very next verse, verse 23. If you call someone an idiot, man, I think I had that down by like five, okay? If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court, and if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. When it comes to sin... When the conversation about sin, 
Jesus doesn't mince words, and He certainly doesn't talk to us as if we are mistakers. He talks to us as if we are sinners. And He raises the stakes. See, here's the reality. When it comes to sin and our performance and this idea of being good before God, Jesus raised the standard so high that no one can make a passing grade. No one. Don't believe me? Just read a couple more verses after this in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27. It gets real uncomfortable, okay? You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Okay, that seems to make sense. None of us want to be cheated on, right? It makes sense, okay? But the next verse gets really uncomfortable. Verse 27. Eight says this, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the context of talking about who's in and who's not. This is heavy. Now, if that is all that Jesus has to say about sin, can I just say, close the book, case closed, I've got a problem and there's no hope. But the reality is that even in the midst of this conversation in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was surrounded by all kinds of people, people who wanted to be close to him, who were living sinful lifestyles. One of the things that's so interesting to me about Jesus is that the people who were the least like Jesus wanted to be around Jesus. The people who were the least like Jesus actually liked Jesus. They flocked to him. But why, if he's raising the standard so high that no one can get a passing grade, why would they want to be around him? Is it possible that when Jesus talks about sin, he's doing more than just condemning us? Is it possible that he's got a different goal in mind? See, actually, I think that's what comes out a little bit later in the Scriptures. In Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus continues to talk about sin and sinners and sinful people. And in verse 1, we find that there's a lot of people like that. And maybe you identify. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've been a, 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 a quote-unquote good person all of your life. Well, this story is going to talk about you too. Okay, But in Luke chapter 15, we find out that tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. They're flocking around him, and that made some people upset. Guess who it made upset? It was the law teachers and the Pharisees. Verse 2 says this, This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people, even eating with them. How dare they? Right? So Jesus decided to make it plain that when it comes to sin and when it comes to, to, to God and what God is trying to do, when it comes to a starting point for dealing with our sin, he decided to, to kind of put the cookies on the bottom shelf to make it plain for us what God is trying to do. And he told them three stories about really God's approach to sinful people. Story number one. It's a story of a shepherd who had 100 sheep. 
99 of them came home at night. One of them wandered off. What did the shepherd do? I got 99, I'm good. 99% is pretty good. No. He went to find the one, and he didn't stop searching until he did. When he brought it back home, he threw a party, and he rejoiced because the one who was lost was now found. The next story involves a woman who had 10 coins that she had been saving for retirement. It was her life savings. And one of those coins was lost. And so what does she do? Say, hey, I've got 90%. It's okay. It's good. You know, I only lost one. No big deal. No. She calls all her friends. They gather. They sweep the house. They put on some lamps. They look all around. And they don't stop looking until they find that which was lost. When they find it, she throws a party and celebrates. Then he tells the story that I want to walk you through today. Pick up in verse 11 if you're following along in, in your Bible. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. Okay? I have two sons. Some of you here may be sons or have sons. Here's this man. He has two sons. And one day... The younger son comes to him, and what does he say? The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. In that culture, when a father died, if he had two sons, he would divide his, his estate and give an extra portion to the oldest and the other to the youngest. So it would be divided into three. Two portions would go to the oldest. One portion would go to the youngest. The youngest comes to his father and says, Dad, here's the deal. I'm going to get some money when you die. But you just won't die. Can we pretend you're dead and you give me the money now? I know we laugh, but in reality, that's what he did. And the father very kindly and graciously agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. The older stayed home and continued to work with the father. But the younger, what did he do? Well, after a few days, he packed up his bags, he got everything, and he moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. So let's just recap for a minute. Here we are, father and son, they have a good relationship, they have a relationship. Son comes to dad, dad, pretty much I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, give me my money and I'm moving on. He took it and he wasted it, he broke his relationship with his father, which by the way, that's what sin does, it breaks trust, it breaks relationships, it breaks things, and he wasted it all on wild living. Eventually, he began to get hungry. He goes and gets a job. He fails even at the job, doesn't have the ability to take care of himself, and then verse 17 tells us what happened next. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. He's saying to himself, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to just be a hired servant. But something finally clicks with him. 
Something that I think is I- imperative for us to get. Because when we've sinned, because, I, I, again, you are not just a mistaker. And I am not just a mistaker. I am a sinner. And my sin has broken things. First and foremost, it has broken things between me and God. And if I ever have a hope of a, a starting point and a, a restart point in my relationship with God, I need to know how to take it from this back to this. Something clicked in his head. And I don't want you to miss it. Verse 20 tells us when he got home, while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him coming. Dad's out looking day after day. He was filled with love and compassion, and he ran to his son. He embraced him, and he kissed him. Now, here's the thing. Before I go to the next verse, things are broken. He runs. He hugs him. He kisses him. He embraces him. But does that fix it? You, you know this. You've been hurt by people. You've, you've been sinned against. Wait, does it, is it just fixed when you see them? No. It's not until the son speaks to the father and does something, I think, that changes everything. Verse 21. His son said to him, Father, I have made a mistake. Yep. I was young. I was foolish. I was unwise. No big deal. I made a mistake. Can we just let this all be water under the bridge and act like it never happened? Is that what what happened? We know this. We know that when somebody sins against us and they're like, you know, they, they show up and they're like, Hey, yeah, uh, you know, sorry about that. It's no big deal. Does that fix it? <laughs> it's like, is there a I'm sorry in there? Not just a sorry. I'm sorry. I hurt you. I sinned. I broke our relationship. See, inherently, we know that that's what it takes. And when the son comes home, he says, I have sinned. I didn't make a mistake. I didn't mess up. I chose it. I did it on purpose. I sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, if all we knew about what Jesus has to say about sin was Matthew 5 and how he raises the standard so high, right, we would expect him to say, well, sorry, bud, but you missed the cut. Is that how he responds? 
See, verse 22 teaches us something about how, how, how God responds to me and my sin. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Not, hey, you go sleep out in the barn. Not, you messed up. I mean, I'd get a, you done messed up, eh, Aaron? That's what I'd get, okay? You know? Thank you for laughing at that with me. Appreciate that. But the father says, no, give him a robe. Give him a ring that shows everybody he's my son. Put sandals on his feet. Not only that, we're going to kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. Why? Why? Why all of this? Is this father just like so much nicer than everybody else? Or is it possible that this is actually the heart of God towards sinners? The very next verse tells us why. Verse 24. This son of mine was dead. And that's what sin does. The son of mine was dead, and now he's returned to life. He was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he is found. So let the party begin. Here's what he's saying. He got it. He, he gets it. He owned it. And now there can be restoration. And I know that when we talk about sin, it feels so heavy and it feels like so final and it feels like there's nothing else. But Jesus' purpose in every situation that he talked about sin is not condemnation. Jesus' purpose in talking about sin is restoration. Not condemnation. Jesus is talking to us so that we can know how we can be made right. And frankly, it comes down to forgiveness. It comes down to us owning our brokenness, owning our sin, and looking to Him for forgiveness. Which begs a question. For every single one of us. and You can go on thinking that you are a mistaker. But you've been planning some mistakes. And you've been doing them over and over. Or you could choose to wrestle with this question this week. Okay? Do you need reconciliation with God. Is that what you need? Is it, is it possible that, that you were made to be right with God, but sin broke it, and now the only thing that can restore it, the only thing that can fix it, the only thing that can bring it back together is if we own it. And we, we ask Him for forgiveness and help. Because otherwise, that standard that Jesus talked about, 
is awfully high. So here's what I want to do. I want to leave you with just, just two, two steps that you can consider taking this week and work you can take these and you can work on them, but you could also have a conversation with the people in your small group. You could have a conversation with whoever you came with today. You could have a conversation with your spouse, have a conversation with your kids about these two things. But the number, the, the first one that I want to ask you to consider is this, to own your sin. Nobody can own it for you. Nobody can take care of it without you first owning it. But then secondly, when, when, when Jesus finishes this story, here, here's, this, here's this son who has done massive wrong, and he's come home, and he is, he is, he is reestablished as a son. He's given a robe, and he's given a ring, and he's given sandals, and he's given a meal. He is not defined by what he did. He is defined by what the Father has done. So you and I need to know that your sin doesn't define you. And even if your sin looks different than the younger son, maybe you're more like the older son who threw a huge fit when the son got back because he thought, I've worked for it, I've earned it, I've done everything right. Shouldn't let him in. That self-righteousness needed the same forgiveness as that of the younger. I beg of you, as you're considering a starting point for faith, at some point you're going to have to wrestle with your problem. For me, I'm the problem. You are yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. I'm thankful that this account that he gives to us of the father with the sons is, is actually the account of God's heart towards us. I am thankful that that's your heart towards me. I'm thankful that I do not have to earn my way to you. I would not be able to. I am thankful that what Jesus has done has gone well beyond anything that I've ever done or could do. I thank you that it's more than enough, more than enough to cover all of my sins or mistakes or whatever anybody wants to call them. We know what they are. I pray that you'd help us to turn to you and to own our sin and to know that you don't define us by that anymore. You want to define us by Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.